Bum, bum, bum. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Today we return to our ongoing series, Living with Certainty. We're learning the incredible Shar HaBetochen, authored by the great Rabbeinu Bachaya. And as we continue to turn these pages and internalize their message, we will learn to live with certainty, Emirates Hashem. Now the subject that we're going to be talking about today is not directly related to Betochen per se, although it is closely linked to the subject matter. Today's class is called Payback. God's Payback. God's Payback to the wicked. You know, this idea that sometimes very bad people seem to live very good lives. And that's frustrating. It vexes us. I don't think it's nearly as painful as watching righteous people suffer. But it is certainly uncomfortable. And it... Um, it it provides a challenge for those who believe that the way you behave is recompensed. Anyway, that's going to be the focus of today's class. Before I begin, I'd like to gratefully acknowledge our sponsors. Today's class has been dedicated for the merit of a Rafua Shlema for Elisha Chaim ben Berta. And this is a beautiful thing that's being done by his family and his friends. So may Hashem grant Alicia Bamberto or Afur Shlema, and may the merit of today's Torah study bring him all good blessings and all good things in Mirz Hashem. Amen. So with no further ado, I think that in order to appreciate where we're coming from today, it's perhaps, shall we say, it's of help to just simply Recap for a moment. Presently, we're going to be studying about the prosperity of the wicked. But this was preceded by two episodes that focused on the suffering of the righteous. Why are we talking about this? What does it have to do with betochen? <laughs> well, kind of everything. Because the thesis or premise of betochen is that you trust in Hashem and good things will come your way. And all of the challenges that we find in, for example, making a livelihood are not because God can't provide for us. 
in an easeless, seamless and painless way? Of course he could, of course he could. In fact, he does provide life and sustenance to the vast, overwhelming majority of life that teems on the planet. It's only us, <laughs> you and me, as members of the human race who are faced with these challenges. Why? Rebbeinu B'chaya says that's for our good. God loves us, he cares about us, he wants what's best for us. So he arranges circumstances, circumstances that will enable us to grow, to develop, and to achieve greatness. And that, of course, presents us with the great big faith challenge. If God loves us, cares about us, and the reason that all these things are happening is because we need to be challenged. Otherwise, we might forget God or become decadent. What about the righteous who suffer? What about the challenges they have in providing for their loved ones? Ah, no. says Rabbeinu Bachaya, you have a point. Firstly, the ways of God are a mystery. But that's not satisfying. We're intelligent creatures. We like to have some rhyme and reason attached to things, at least objectively speaking. So Rabbeinu Bachaya kind of illustrates a number of possibilities as to why righteous people might suffer or might find themselves extraordinarily challenged even though they don't need it. He cannot leave the subject before addressing a matter of fact that frustrates people of faith. Wicked, bad, evil people, rebellious people laughing all the way to the bank. Life's good for them. I mean, if God cares, and there's recompense, what we call scharva einish, how come we don't see it? As people sometimes say to me, they say, Rabbi, I'd love to believe in God. I wish I could believe. Which to me affirms this instinctual desire to be close to Hashem. But they say to me, it doesn't add up. Sometimes it doesn't. Why? Before we actually begin to read the text, I want to remind all of you and myself not to make assumptions about people or circumstances. That is to say, just because you think somebody's wicked doesn't mean they actually are. I mean, sometimes it's kind of obvious. Sometimes it's impossible for us to reach that inescapable conclusion. But there are times when things might not seem quite the way they are. There's a very famous story that's told about a miser who lived in the town of the Teisvis Yamtev. The miser who refused to give a red cent to tzedakah. And after the miser died, they discovered that he was actually helping hundreds of needy families, but preferred to fly under the radar. And people who had berated, disparaged, and even attacked him had a great deal of regret after. So not everybody we think is wicked is actually so wicked, but then there are like bad people. There are acts of brutality, violence, harm, denigration, are a matter of public record, and yet they're prospering. So we don't necessarily claim to know the reason why this person prospers, or why that person prospers. 
That isn't Rabbeinu Bechaya's point. As he mentioned previously, there really are endless possibilities and many moving pieces, variables that you and I will actually never know. Yet, here is a framework, a broad perspective, which will open our minds, expand our horizons, and give us new spiritual perspective on an appreciation for things that are, that don't seem to be right. With no further ado, let us begin to focus inside the actual Shara B'tachin. If you're following along in the Kihat version, well, I seem to have left that book downstairs today. Uh, okay, it's right where it says, Reasons the Wicked Prosper. I don't remember what page number it is. Says Rabbeinu B'chayim, Avo, Toivas hokel yizborech al harosho. The goodness that the Almighty, blessed be He, bestows upon the wicked. And perhaps we could add the word sometimes. Or maybe even oftentimes. It seems to me that the righteous suffering are per capita, broadly speaking, less of a phenomenon than the wicked prospering. The wicked prospering seems to be widespread. <laughs> There's lots of people who don't, at least to our eyes, seem to deserve goodness that are really having a wonderful life. There are some righteous who suffer, but there are a lot of wicked people that are prospering. So whilst it may not be so frustrating for us, it's much more commonplace. Hence the theological conundrum. What in heaven is going on here? So Rabbeinu Bechaya will offer us in the ensuing pages, no less than six reasons or six possible ways to understand or rationalize this. I hope we'll get through four of them today. Yesh It is possible, he said, that Hashem is going to be rewarding somebody for a goodness that he or she has previously performed. So because of that goodness, God will reward them in this world. Why? Why would he reward them in this world? Like, why is the reward for the wicked any different than the reward for the righteous? And if we say, that there is no reward in this world for mitzvot, then why would the wicked person be rewarded for a mitzvah in this world. In other words, the opening premise is, even somebody wicked has done something good. So that person who has done something good is going to realize immediate gratification for the goodness they, they committed. Why? So Rabbeinu Bechaya says, I'm not making this up. There's actually an open verse in the Torah, Kamesha Omar, as God himself says, through the greatest of prophets, Moshe Rabbeinu, Deuteronomy 7, verse 10, Literally, God recompenses those who hate him. Mishalem, he pays, payback. L'soynov, those who hate him. Alponov. Now, alponov, literally on their face, 
to cause their perishing, cause them to perish. What does that mean? The tirgumu harishonim, and so the interpretation, or what you might call the translation, as rendered by the earliest of sages, and it's unusual maybe to use the term rishonim here, because we refer to the rishonim as the great Torah leaders of the medieval era. Rabbeinu Bachaya is on the cusp, just the beginning of the Rishonim, having completed this volume nearly a thousand years ago. So he's one of the earliest Rishonim, but he's talking about Rishonim. Who is he talking about? So the Toiv Halavanan says, who Targum Unculus? This refers to the translation slash commentary of Unculus, a Roman convert, a nephew of the evil Caesar Hadrian, who was probably named Achilles, like Achilles' heel, or a Greek name. Much of Roman culture, in fact, the vast overwhelming majority of Roman culture, is an actual appropriation of Greek culture and many Greek names. So Achilles was this brilliant scholar, master of language, who converted and became a member of the Jewish people, but not just any manner. He became one of the most outstanding Torah teachers of all time. In fact, his Targum, his interpretation, which is really a commentary as well, is considered to be, until this very day, the most foundational commentary, interpretation, translation of the Torah of all time. Rashi, the master of Pshuto Shomikra, the straightforward, if you will, simple reading direct reading of the text, leans on Unculus more so than any other source. So we refer here to Rishonim, the Tevalavanan says, he means Unculus. And what we're going to read here now is an actual uh, quote from Unculus. However, as I will soon show you, this idea is not only found in Targum Unculus, it is also found in the Targum, in the translation slash commentary, much more commentary actually, written by Yonatan ben Uziel, the eldest disciple of Hillel. And it is also found in another Targum known as Targum Yerushalmi. So in all of the Targumim, this is the way it's translated. Rashi, who lives centuries after Rabbeinu Bachaya, follows this approach in explaining the straightforward meaning. It is uh, interesting to note that there is a similar homily or interpretation of this verse that's found in the Gemara in Masechet Erevin on page 22, but it is not exactly what Rabbeinu B'chai refers to here. And so here, he doesn't send us off to our sages, to the Gemara. He emphasizes specifically Tirgumu Bohari Shonim and the Targumim, the translation slash commentaries on the Torah, render it. And this is a quote from Targum Unkelis. Umishalem l'sanoihi, he recompenses or repays those who hate him, tovon or tovon the inon avdin for the good that they might have done, kodmohi bechayehoin laoivdehoin before him in their lifetime, meaning in this world, to make them perish, to make them disappear, so to speak, in the world to come. So just to give you a little bit of context, 
um, as the Kihat Chomish puts it, and I'm going to just share with you the English translation. Although, as stated, this is the English translation of the Kiat Chomish to give you context for this verse. Although, as stated, God fully rewards the devotion of those who love Him, there may be circumstances that cause the reward not to reach them. In such cases, they will receive the reward that they failed to receive in their lifetimes in the afterlife. In contrast, and that brings us to what we're talking about today, Hashem fully recompenses those who hate Him for whatever good they do or may have done during their lifetime, while they are still alive. And thus, they enter the afterlife devoid of any merits. Well, if you have no merits in the afterlife, that causes them to perish or, in essence, to be denied any afterlife. The verse, incidentally, goes on to say, He does not delay in rewarding one who hates him for the good that he does. He recompenses him while he is alive. Now, when you read the uh, Targum Unculus in a straightforward fashion, it sounds like Lefonov before him is, before his, so to speak, before his countenance, before, before God. But Rashi actually tells us otherwise. In Rashi's commentary, and Rashi's taking his commentary from the Targum, he says, Mishalim l'sein of Alpanov, he translates Bichayov. Alpanov means in his life. Mishalim l'gmule atoiv. He pays him back for the good that he has done. Why? Kedei l'ha'avidoi, in order to get rid of him, liberate him, min ha'elam haba from the world to come. Now, it seems to me that Rashi leans not only on the Targum Unculus, but actually on the other Targumim, and I want to share with you what the other Targumim say in order to best understand Rabbeinu Bechaya's point. So the Targum Yonatan ben Uziel says, Umishalem lesanohi, he pays those who hate him, agar of dehon, reward for their deeds, tavia, good deeds, ba'al mahadein in this world. That doesn't really say in this world. Unculus doesn't say it exactly like that. It says, Kodmohi Bechayein in their life. The Targum Yonason further emphasizes in this world. Min Beglal, the Mishyetzi in order that they be not allowed to enter, barred from entering the world to come. And the Targum Yonason finishes off. Mashi, Loi Mashi, Hashem does not delay, Lesanoi, for those who hate him. Ad, the Hinun Bechayein Be'almohadein. Emphasizing again, they get paid back in their lifetime in this world. In other words, material goodness. They receive the life of prosperous enjoyment in this world. In this world. Hadein mishalem lohing mulayin. And this is how, pardon me, alma hadein in this world, mishalem lohing goimlehan, he repays or gives them their payback. So that's what the Targum Yerushalmi says. The Targum Yerushalmi says, slightly different. And I want to share it with you. Umishalim lisnoi ba'al mahadein. He too emphasizes, he pays, repays, recompenses those who hate him in this world. Agar of the hon tavaya min beglal mispera min hoin ba'al madasi, so that he can exact payment in the next world. Vlemashi agartov lisnoi. He doesn't delay the good reward, the reward for the good for his enemies. Ad inon yahiven ba'al mahadein. Until 
They get it right here in this world. As long as they are still in this world, he repays them agar for their mitzvahs that they have in hand now. So there's an, a clear, clear emphasis in the targum, in the targumim of being repaid in their lifetime, which refers to the terrestrial lifetime, and a further emphasis in the other targumim as in this world, referring to material goodness. So the recompense comes in the form of material goodness. And it is so that this person doesn't merit to enter the world to come, or doesn't benefit from the goodness that is eternal. So, so this is like, um, this, this, this is hard to understand. And I'll, let me tell you why it's hard to understand. It, it depicts God as being capricious, vengeful. You hate me, I'll get you back. I'll pay you in this world, and then I'll rob you from the future. Sounds almost like uh, petty. What's, what's really the bigger message here? Now, Rabbeinu Bechaya is simply introducing you to an idea, a scriptural idea, embroidered with rabbinic uh, oral tradition. But he's, he's introducing you to this idea that the Torah itself, scripture itself says, that the wicked will be rewarded for their good deeds. So A, we're going to assume that this person has done some good deeds, but, I mean, everybody's done something good at some point. So they're going to get whatever good they did in this world, and God is going to smite them by disabling their eternity. They will have no eternity, only be rewarded in this world. The Teuf HaLavonon says... Bavur tova shakod maloi for some reward that preceded. Bishvileza mitzvah shasakfar for some mitzvah he did already. This guy is rotten to the core. All you see is evil, but there was some mitzvah he did at some point. God recompenses. The Paslechem says, Shaosa bismana kodum. Maybe before he became so wicked, he wasn't all bad. Maybe he did something good at some point. You don't know. You weren't always with him. So, you don't know. You have to assume he must have done something good. God's rewarding him right here in this world. It's a perspective. It helps us deal with the faith conundrum as to why is the wicked person prospering? Why? Because Hashem is repaying him for whatever good he might have done so that he doesn't have to give him any eternity. But can good in this world ever actually equal the value of a mitzvah? I mean, doesn't a Mishnah say, schar mitzvah, mitzvah, the only thing as valuable as a mitzvah is a mitzvah? Is the relationship itself? And again, it sounds almost petty. God's like settling scores. So in order to better understand this, I thought it would be of help to introduce you to some fascinating commentary from Rishonim and Achronim that helps frame what we've just learned. Even though Rabbeinu B'chaya per se isn't saying what I'm about to share with you, I think it helps us understand his message. I want to begin 
by directing your attention to a manuscript of Nachmanides, Rabbeinu Moshe ben Nachman, one of the great Rishonim who lives several centuries after Rabbeinu Bachaya. Incidentally, he wrote a treatise on Emune and Betochen as well, and we've quoted it in these classes. He also wrote something called Torat HaAdam, the Torah or the instructions from Hashem about how you know, people live. Talks about the meaning of life, the purpose of our existence. And there is a section called Shar Hagmul, the portal of recompense, where he talks about mitzvot, avirot, and consequences. And specifically, the idea of reward for a mitzvah. So in the Shar Hagmul, Rabbeinu Moshe ben Nachman Ramban says this. It is possible, he says, that we will be speaking about a person who is a Rasha Gomor, a totally evil person, a person who has no redeeming qualities. Shenidon begihinom, that he is judged by and for, I guess what you would call purgatory, for generations whatever that means in a world where time doesn't exist. Lefi, for example, he denied the basic idea of the soul's eternity and Hashem's promise to make those who lived, live again. Or he abused the public. He was a corrupt public official who used his position to abuse and to terrorize the public. These are things that the Talmud says there's no reward for. I mean, no, no, there's no, like, it, God doesn't overlook these things. What if this person studied some Torah? What if this person performed some mitzvah? Is it impossible to conceive of? And if he did, if he's being sent to purgatory for generations, what about what about the reward for the good things he's done? Is there nothing between this person who's done some mitzvot and the other person who's done no mitzvot? The person who's a idolater, a megala arois, a sexual predator, a sheifach domim, a murderer. There's no chaluk v'hefresh. Ramban says, Hashem tzaddik, God is righteous. Loyasa avla, there's no iniquity, no wrongdoing in God. Elohi says, The person who performs Hashem's mitzvot, good deeds. But over Averot Harbe, but he does a lot of bad things. Or Avera Chamura, or a terrible very, very egregious sin. The kind of which Rahi lies Oved Vinidon Gomer, the kind that makes him or transforms him into a person who is wholly wicked, entirely wicked, irredeemable.
the kind of wickedness that uh, Rambam wrote, that the person's wickedness endures for eternity. Like Minim and Apikursim, like heretics and those who actually fight against the Torah, deny the Torah, destroy the Jewish faith and religion, deny the future, messianic future. Rambam writes in his responsa, this person is doomed to what I guess you would call in the modern English vernacular, eternal damnation. So Ramban says, Hashem will have to repay him the reward for the mitzvahs that he does. Why? Well, there's no other option. This person isn't going to Olam Abba. He has no proverbial heaven awaiting him. There is no eternity. His eternity is all doom and gloom. It's all purgatory. It's all he's got. So it's a bit of a, like a catch-22. He's got some mitzvahs, but there's no possibility to recompense him for the true value of the mitzvahs because, because there's no eternity. There is no heaven. There is no afterlife. What happens to that person? So Ramban says, in that case, God pays him in this world. In other words, it's not capricious. Quite on the contrary. It's God saying, you have destroyed your own future. You have destroyed your eternity. But I still have to recompense you. So I'll recompense you in this world because you've left me no choice. So God could say, you destroyed your eternity. Don't look at me. This wasn't my idea. It was your choice. And as such, you have no reward. You've abrogated whatever reward you might have had coming. But Ramban says, Hashem Tzadik, Layasa Avla. God promises that every good thing is recompensed. So there's no option. The recompense will have to take place in this world because there is no other world. <laughs> there is no thing after this world. No other possibilities. And Nachmanadi says, this is the meaning of what is written, And now he's quoting Deuteronomy 7, verse 10. And he quotes Onkelos, the same Onkelos we just quoted a moment before. He repays him in this world. There's simply no choice. Because there is no next world to come to. So that's God's kindness, not capriciousness. A little bit later, in the Shar Hagmul, part of Teresa Adam, Ramban says, once again, I'm quoting. So, this is how God recompenses the wicked in this world. Even if it's just a small little mitzvah, Every mitzvah gets recompensed. Every mitzvah is provided for. Hashem doesn't overlook anything. And Ramban goes on to quote a fascinating statement, which is made by our sages that's found in the Gemara in Mesechet Brachot on page 61. Alma, ela Gemiri, 
Our world functions either for the woolly righteous or the woolly wicked. This world functions for the woolly wicked. The next world functions for the woolly righteous. The woolly wicked, they don't exist in that world. And he says, this means, Purely righteous people can partake of this world, but really inherit the world to come. As it says, Rishoyim Gemurim, he says, Even though they go down into the proverbial abyss, destroyed forever. But they know about it. They still will be able to benefit in this world, enjoying a prosperous and rewarding life. And that's that's the recompense for the minor amount of mitzvahs they may have done. And this says the Chmanides, is the meaning of hein tzadik ba'aretz yishulam. There is righteousness in the world, then it will always be recompensed. Af ki rasha Even if the person is wicked and he's a sinner. So ha-tzadik mishtalem ba'ilam hazeh al-avedis sha'isa ka-vachayim rashi rasha. If the tzadik is repaid in this world, certainly the rasha will be paid in this world. So the rasha is paid in this world, and this is how the wicked are able, so to speak, to prosper in this world. Now, from the Ramban, we can understand that there simply is no other choice. I want to share with you something quite fascinating that's written by the great sage of the 20th century known as Chofetz Chaim, the Bissol Meirakoyin of Radin. He wrote a book called Shem Olam. Fifth chapter deals with laws of Shabbos. And in a footnote there, he sheds light on on this business of reward and punishment. And fascinatingly, what he says actually seems to jibe with a, perfectly, you know, like, literally like, like hand in glove with something that the Alter Rebbe writes. So in the Sefer Shem he says that you can't get rewarded for a mitzvah in this world because this world doesn't have the ability to <laughs> recompense the value of a mitzvah. It's not possible. We learn in Mesechet Avot that one moment of bliss in eternity is more valuable than all of the delight that one could possibly experience in this world. So, of what value is a life of Riley? What value is a life of prosperity and enjoyment, of delight and sensual libido and gratification and fulfillment and fame and fortune. What value is that? It's, it's, it's nothing. It's mist. It's a vapor. It's here for an evanescent moment and fades forever. So the, the Chafetz Chaim says, in view of this, Ech Yitzur, how would we understand what is written in Deuteronomy, Umishalim Lasainov, Alpan of Lahavide, that Hashem is going to pay, Mishalim Lahem Scharzit Kosum Bailamazed, that Hashem is going to repay the wicked for their mitzvahs in this world. And the Chavetz Chaim notes that this is Kapitish Rashi, Vahatargum. That's what Rashi says, it's what the Targumim say. So that is the straightforward reading. So, how does that work? How did the value of this world somehow equal the value of a mitzvah? When nothing in this world is 
as qualitative or virtuous as the profundity of the energy that's engendered by the performance of a mitzvah. There's, there's just no way that this world can serve as recompense. So the Chafetz Chaim, in his classic style, says, I want to explain this with a mushal by virtue of a parable. He says, there was an Ish Echad Ramai, there was a fraudster. Shapita Ish Kotzen Echad, that he came to some high-ranking official. He had counterfeit money printed. Counterfeited the currency. So this high-ranking official gives him a small bill of authentic money, authentic currency. So the person says, I, I came to get change. He says, what, what are you doing? I gave you hundreds of bills. Did you give me back a dollar? One bill? He gave you all these bills. So the high-ranking official says, you fool. You're comparing my money, my currency, my dollars to yours? <laughs> he says, Shalcham is the office. He says, it'll counter for the money. He says, my bill is real. It's actual. It's authentic. So the fraudster, the criminal said, what difference does it make? Paper is paper. You buy what you want. Currency is currency. It makes no difference. He says, yeah, you're not too bright, are you? He says, you fool. I, I, I could go into the, the royal coffers, the Ministry of Interior. I can go to any bank. And I can use this, this uh, my money, my currency, and they are happy to do business with me. But your counterfeit money, you're a counterfeiter. They're going to catch on to you in a moment. You'll be thrown straight into prison or worse. So as such... Be happy with the fact that I gave you anything for your counterfeit currency. So the Chafetz Chaim metaphorizes and he says, you should know that this is really what we're talking about. There's mitzvahs. He says in this mitzvahs. There's authentic mitzvahs. And there's counterfeit mitzvahs. Mitzvahs that are done as the fulfillment of Hashem's will as an act of devotion and subservience to God, and mitzvahs that are done capriciously. Mitzvahs that are done almost, if you will, to abuse the agency for your own personal gain. There isn't an ounce of devotional loyalty. It isn't even habitual. It's actually performed in a counterfeit fashion. It looks like a mitzvah, but it isn't. It's fake. And he says, when you have a real mitzvah, so it's got, so to speak, the signature of the minister of interior. Where did I get this from? He says, signature, currency, mitzvah turned into a bill. He says, there's a medish. The medish rabba, Amigilos Rus, in chapter 5, subsection 6 says, Kisha Odom, Oisa Mitzvah. When a person does a mitzvah, Eliyahu Kaisva, O Melech HaMashiach, Vakadish Baruch Chaisam Al Yadom. Eliyahu prints the bill, Mashiach and God 
sign on to it. Hadohu dechsiv. Where is there a verse? There is a verse. The last of the great prophets, Malachi said, Oz nidburu yirei Hashem ishareyehu. Then says Malachi, chapter 13, verse 16, people who revere Hashem, who live respectfully, speak to one another. And the verse finishes, Vayikosef sefer zikardin lefanav. It is recorded. He says, this is a euphemism for that metaphor of the, if you will, of the bill. The bill that's written, the bill that's created. Chafetz Chaim says, if you want, you can even find it in the Pentateuch, in the five books of Moses itself. Hashem promises that He will reward. He says, Ani Hashem. And our sages tell us on this very verse, Leviticus 22, verse 33, Ani Hashem, and Rashi quotes this, Nemo l'shalem socher, you can rely on me. If, if I say I'm going to recompense, I'm good. My word is good. And the Medrash says, It's like the king who signs off on the document. So these are the bills, the authentic bills. With this currency, you can go shopping, so to speak, in heaven. You come, you come with this kind of currency, you'll be welcomed with open arms. And there we say, for that currency, you can buy real goods. And you offer shoachas, one moment of pleasure in the other world, it's better than all the pleasure or libido you can find in this world. It's foolish to spend real currency on fake products. But if all you have is monopoly money or a clever forgery, the mitzvahs that he has are not being done for God's honor. Those mitzvahs are done for some other purpose. It's an abuse of the mitzvah. Because God doesn't sign on to a mitzvah like that. The Chafetz Chaim metaphorizes. It's like a, a counterfeit bill. And therefore, when you come to the other world with counterfeit funds, you can't go shopping. You have zero buying power. Adarabba. If you come and you have fake, fake bills with you, you'll get arrested. Not only will you not have buying power, you'll be persecuted. Should I say prosecuted by the courts? And so the Chafetz Chaim says... God says, on these kind of mitzvahs, I don't sign. I don't sign. But the person did a mitzvah. So the Chafetz Chaim says, and I think here he's echoing the sentiment of the Shara Gemul. He says, in God's magnanimity and endless goodness, God doesn't not reward anybody. A mitzvah was done. Afilo Adam Rasha, even a thoroughly wicked person. Yishulam Sach. Then you got to get paid. He has counterfeit money. Spend it where counterfeit money is accepted. Counterfeit currency buys you counterfeit value. And that's this world. This world is all counterfeit. All the goodness of this world is fake and meaningless.
a moment of libido, a moment of pleasure, a temporary release of serotonin, a drop of happiness that people experience, and then they're miserable all over again. There's nothing in the material world that leaves a person lastingly satisfied. But nachas, raise a family, part of a community, in a friendship of people who are involved in holiness and have done something good for Hashem, that provides you with eternal nachas. That gives you real satisfaction. A life lived well. A life lived purposely. A life lived meaningfully that actually grants a person happiness. Not the evanescent, fake happiness. Real, lasting happiness. That's what real mitzvahs are. But nonetheless, a mitzvah is a mitzvah, even a fake mitzvah. So you get a fake recompense. In the world, that's all fake. Our fake world. The world of the here and now that is gone in a moment. It was done with dishonesty and deceit. Doesn't earn you any kind of eternity. So I was thinking about this, like this uh, very interesting, very powerful stuff to Chofetz Chaim saying, and I remembered that the Alter Rebbe in Tanya quotes this very idea about a mitzvah shalei l'shma if it's done entirely, in entirely wicked fashion. The Alter Rebbe in the 40th chapter of Lukut Yambarim Tanya says that a person could learn for the sake of Hashem. L'shma. In order to cleave to Hashem to experience oneness, the highest level of spiritual pursuit. A person could learn Shaloi Lishma. And that would be for his own self-aggrandizement. It's got nothing to do with God. So like a person is doing somebody a favor, he doesn't care about that person, he's doing him a favor. He doesn't care if he's alive or dead. All he cares about is how does it look for me? An absolute narcissist. Stalin Yamakshimo kissing the babies. He kept the babies alive or dead. He killed babies for sport. But it looked good for him to kiss the babies. He kissed the babies. There's no love. There's no loyalty. There's no decency. All there was was endless cruelty, brutality, and narcissism. And the exploitation of others. When a person does a mitzvah like that, it's not a good thing. And then there's a third path. Neither extreme. He's not such a big tzaddik. He's not such a big rasha. He's learning Torah. Like, probably like most of us learn Torah. We do it habitually. We kind of know this is the right thing to do. We're looking for the truth. But there's less than altruism that courses through the veins of these actions. We were raised this way. We have a sense that this will bring us fulfillment. That this is the real truth. And some, some part of us is motivated to seek it and to attach ourselves to it. And al says that this kind of learning, this kind of spiritual pursuit ultimately can be brought, brought around, can be elevated. And describes of Pikabala how a person's learning in that fashion without the chilo rechima, without fervor, talks about this also in Perik Yud Zion in the end of the 17th chapter about doing mitzvahs without proper awe and respect and love for Hashem. You know, like habitual mitzvahs. So he says, 
the, the, the emotions invested in a mitzvah, like the wings of the bird, the czar says. So the bird flies. But Al-Tareba says if a bird's missing his wings, if his wings are clipped, it's still a kosher bird. You still have the body of the mitzvah. So here he says, He once again invokes this idea in the 40th chapter of Tanya, and he says, without the chilu without the emotional passion, fervor, and awe for Hashem invested, it's not able to be elevated into a higher realm. So the mitzvah kind of remains in this world. It doesn't come before Hashem. So although it doesn't come before Hashem, we say, Hashem in the highest of levels, Nonetheless, there is still value, virtue attached to it. It goes up to angelic realms. It's not mamash on the highest level before Hashem. It's, it moves a person into a higher place, a loftier state of consciousness, what we would call, I guess, the more exalted state of existence. But nonetheless, it's uh, more of an external, rather than the inner essence of what's being sought. And al Rebbe says that this is actually spelled out very clearly by Rav Chaim Vital, who was the star pupil of the Arizal, and his primary scribe, in what he calls Shar Hanavur, the portal of prophecy, the second chapter. That Torah which is not learned for the purest purposes, it creates angels in the world of Atzira. It creates angels in what we call the world of Asiya. So every malach, every angel, is, if you will, like an energy field that's engendered through the actions we do. You study Torah, you create an energy. Just like we know that energy can't dissipate, it just changes forms. That's material, nuclear energy. So it is also mitzvahs. The mitzvahs don't disappear. But what form do they take? The form of, 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 a, of an energy in the world of Yitzira or the world of, 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 of Asiya, Haruchni. Now, I'm not going into this now. We're not, this is not the focus of our study today. I just want to show you, illustrate to you what Chavot Chaim writes. Actually, it, it jibes with the mystical tradition. But then the Alter Rebbe says... But if you learn Torah in an exploitive way, it's all about you. God? Who ever heard of God? Who cares a hoot about God? This is a person who can study Torah and stab somebody in the back. He can, he can mercilessly torture people. He can lie and cheat. He can violate everything in the Torah he just learned because it's not about God. It's about Him. This is a way for him to gain respect, notoriety. It's a way for him perhaps to make money. It's all self-serving. He's like an idolater, worshiping himself. He, I should be a wise person. I should get respect. I should be held in esteem. He says, It goes nowhere. Not even to the mother. Where does it stay? He says, It stays in this world, in It stays in the husks, that which is extraneous, that which is only created to serve a purpose, namely, that we should have freedom to choose. So God creates a world that is dark, 
a world that is seemingly on the surface devoid of his presence so that we have the ability to choose, thusly manufacturing righteousness, which comes by virtue of our choices, the choices we make. And the harder the choice, <laughs> the more powerful, the more meaningful the mitzvah. That's what we're talking about here. So this, this kind of learning, learning which is, or Torah study, or pursuit of a mitzvah, pursuit of spirituality, which is for profoundly unspiritual purposes, Rahman al-Islam, this is actually something that conceals rather than reveals the presence of God. Not only it doesn't bring a person closer to God, it, it takes a person further away from God. And the Rebbe goes on to quote a teaching from the Zohar on the verse in Kohelet, He says, what virtue, what is the value of all the work people do under the sun? And the Zohar says, even if it could be spiritual work, if he's working or toiling for himself, that's idolatry. That's not service of God. And that's not a good thing. And he says, this is the meaning of the Gemara, Masechet Pesachim on page 50, that says, fortunate is the one who comes, and he has the Torah he studied in hand. Pirush. It's the world of truth. You can't come at counterfeit bills to the world of truth. You have no buying power, so to speak. You're not in the running. So it actually jibes like perfectly with, with, with the, this metaphor that the Chafetz Chaim gives. It's accurate. Al pi Kabbalah, it's accurate. Such a mitzvah is actually meaningless. Interestingly, in the Kuntas Achren of the Alter Rebbe, the final section, the fifth and final Karasal section of Tanya, in the third section, Kuntas Achren Gimel, the Alter Rebbe says something very similar. He speaks about, you know, doing the right thing without the right reasons. And he says, if you don't have intention, you don't have fervor, it isn't directed towards Hashem, it doesn't really go anywhere. It doesn't go anywhere. Then the Alter Rebbe says that if a person davens all kinds of prayers, but he doesn't, he doesn't really think about Hashem. You know, he's like most people davening, daydreaming. But then at some point, he comes and he recites this word with fervor, passion, focus. That one, Ashra Yosha Vesecha, can elevate many, many times, he said, Ashra Yosha Vesecha. And he says it's not worse than, worse than a, a child who's, uh, you know, reciting, so to speak, holy words. But the Alter Rebbe says, there's a proviso. And the proviso is that it isn't absolutely for the wrong reason. However, Avotayda, pardon me, where are we? All right, I'm, I'm, I'm not finding the word here. Whatever I don't highlight before, I can't find during the class. But anyway, it is in here, in Kuntusach and Gimel, and I strongly suggest that you take a look if you want to see it spelled out clearly. 
All right, so where does this leave us? Where does this leave us? It leaves us going back to Rabbeinu Bechaya with this. Ah, one final point I want to make. One final point. And the point is this. The point is, in the end of that verse, it says that Hashem repays those who are wicked in this world. But he says, you should observe the commandments. And you should, I'm commanding you to do today. Because today is when you're supposed to do it. That's in eternal bliss. That's when you get the reward. And this is a Gemara in Meseches Eruvin. I mentioned this Gemara before. Clearly, Rabbeinu Bachai does not allude to this Gemara because the Gemara translates the words Alponov not as in during his or her lifetime and not in the framework of this world but rather that it's speaking about God's face. As the Gemara says, you, you couldn't, be, couldn't say such a thing if God didn't say it himself, but he employs this euphemism, this anthropomorphism, where it says, It's like something you'd say, Get out of my face. Get out of my face. You make me sick. You revolt me. So how do I get you out of my face? I just get rid of you. That's so to speak. God says to the wicked person, Here, I gave you a payment. I never want to see you again. And then the Gemara says, but he doesn't delay for the wicked. To the wicked, he doesn't delay. Pays them quickly. Gets them out of his face. But he does delay for the tzaddikim. And then he quotes the rest of the verse. He says, The Gemara says, Page 22. It says, Today, Incidentally, the Marsha says that the, the little bit of good that the wicked do are like a nuisance to God. Because it's not even really good. It's not good. So it's almost like a, like, 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 so to speak, a rebellion against Hashem. It's like cynically exploiting a mitzvah to, to go against Hashem. Which kind of fits very much with what we've learned in the last uh, couple of minutes. So he says, therefore, Hashem says, I want to get that out of my face. I want to wipe this away. Let's get rid of it. Let's fold it, collapse it, move it on, move it on. Let's get rid of it. So this is what the Gemara says. But the reward comes in the next world. So the Rebbe once asked a question. The question was, we have an operating principle. And the operating principle is that whatever Hashem commands us to do, Hashem will do himself. That's the operating principle. So the question becomes then, when it comes to employment, when somebody does a job for you, you have to repay them right away. And yet, here the Gemara is telling us, based on these verses, that only the wicked get paid right away. But the righteous, Hashem delays. So we have an open commandment in the Torah that says, The day a person finishes the work is the day they're supposed to get paid. It's found in Deuteronomy 24, verse 15. And then there's a negative commandment. 
which is found in Parshat Kedoshim, Leviticus 19, verse 13, that says, Loitolin pula sochir. You're not allowed to delay the wages of a person who's been hired. We know Hashem does whatever He commands us to do. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is Mekayim the mitzvahs that He commands the Jewish people, as it says in Shema Yisrabah, it's brought in the Yerushalmi, in Masechet Rosh Hashanah, it's brought in Brachas. God does whatever He tells us to do. So what's going on here? So the Rebbe said that in chapter 36 and 37 of Tanya, the Alter Rebbe explains that the purpose of the mitzvahs we do is not simply to earn us buying power in heaven. One should not mistakenly think that this world and all of its darkness, confusion, and obfuscation was designed as an obstacle course for us to get through so that we can earn ourselves a wonderful afterlife. Of course, in the end, it's all about us. Now, one could come to such a conclusion, and many faith systems do, but it is a wrong-headed notion. We know this because Torah says otherwise. Our sages said that God created this world in which His presence is not seen, felt, or known because He wanted it to be seen, felt, or known. And how can that change? How can our world, which doesn't allow the presence of God because it has to be an independent reality allowing for freedom of choice, how can it ever change? The answer is that's what the coming of Mashiach is actually all about. (laughs) <laughs> this is the purpose of creation. Like from the very beginning, it says, In the beginning of creation, it says the Spirit of God was hovering above the waters. The Medr says, Mashiach. This is the Spirit of Mashiach. What does that mean? There was no Galut, there was no dispersion, there's no Jewish people, there's no humanity. There's a Ruach of Mashiach. It means this was the original purpose. The original purpose in creation, as our world began to be formed, was the ultimate picture of a world redeemed, of a world that is entirely perfected. That's the era of Mashiach. We are part of that. So we're all working towards a particular goal. It's much bigger than us as individuals. We have the privilege of being part of this global project called Tikkun Olam, not to be confused with woke or Western values that are papered over this Torah truism, to make it sound Jewish. It means to perfect our world and make it a godly place. And that happens through piety, through observance, through subservience, through devotion and dedication to God. How does that happen? We don't see it. We will see it. We will see it when Mashiach comes. Suddenly, the electromagnet will snap into place And trillions of details will all of a sudden go live. And we'll see it. And on that day, we'll be rewarded. Because we're on contract. We didn't finish the job yet. Who's involved in this project? Who's involved in the creation of this beautiful world, this beautiful future? Righteous people, good people. How about the profoundly wicked, about who is written that they will never rise again. So they're not part of the project. 
So their goodness doesn't really contribute. It's a counterfeit. Counterfeit can't contribute to the truth. But God has to repay them. Okay, so he repays them in this world. So that's the idea of lo ya'acher. Hashem can't delay. He, in fact, is obligated to pay them right away. It's not just, maybe, as Ramban says, God and his goodness. It's God's obligation. That's an obligation he accepts upon himself. I follow the mitzvahs. I said you have to pay on the day of. You're not part of this big project. You're not on contract. You've chosen to opt out of the contract. As such, you do something, I pay you now. And it's over. So this is the first approach Rabbeinu Bechaya takes in explaining why it is that sometimes people who are profoundly wicked seem to prosper and do very well in this world. I hope the variety of sources I introduced give you a better appreciation and understanding of these principles. Let's move on now to the next thing. V'yesh. Now, Rabbeinu Bachai is going to give us another reason. <laughs> of course, you could ask me, and it's a fair question to ask, what was wrong with the first reason? Why do we have to go to another reason? It's a good question. I was thinking about it myself. And the answer probably is that this explanation doesn't fit for many circumstances, many situations. As we learned, in all likelihood, we speak here about somebody who is wholly wicked. Wholly wicked people have to get rewarded in this world. What about somebody who isn't wholly wicked? He isn't entirely bad. Or, perhaps, rotated a little bit differently. What if somebody doesn't have any mitzvahs? He actually does nothing good. It says, There's nobody who's righteous who doesn't make some mistake. But it doesn't say that in Russia, there's no such thing as a wicked person who never, ever, ever, ever does a mitzvah. There is such a thing. There could be a person who's so wicked that they actually destroy any vestige of godliness in their soul. What happens to the nuclear essence? There has to be something of, of godliness, a figment of godliness. This is a subject for another day. There's a letter from the Rebbe about that. He uses a halachic equation called chaticha nas and avela to explain it. I don't want to go into that now. Bottom line is, this first answer has, has its limitations. It has its, its, its occupational hazards, if you will. Number one, it presumes something good was done. Number two, it also presupposes that that good that was done was entirely rotten and actually of no value. There are bad people, wicked people, mean people, evil people, who are not entirely mean, wicked, evil, and capricious. And they have sometimes a few redeeming qualities. Or maybe people who have no redeeming qualities at all. So Rabbeinu B'chaya offers another perspective, V'yesh. And then he says, there is the possibility, that the goodness, the prosperity, could be merely a deposit being held for somebody else. In other words, says the Paslechem, God's goodness to this person, Lerosha, it's The person isn't actually enjoying what they have. They're merely holding on to it for somebody else. 
Maybe this person is going to have a child who's worthy. He'll deserve it. So then he'll receive it. Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar says this idea is not his own. It's actually clearly spelled out in a verse that's found in the book of Job. In Eov, in the 27th chapter, in the 17th verse it says, Yochin, he prepares it, but Tzadik Yilbush, but the righteous actually wears it. So the verse goes on to speak about somebody who amasses mounds of money, like, like dirt. He prepares a, a wardrobe that's as abundant as clay. It's everywhere. His, his endless wealth. But he doesn't wear it. He can prepare it. He doesn't wear it. That's a euphemism. He doesn't benefit from it. And it goes to his offspring. The Omar. And there's another verse. And the other verse says, V'lachote nasan inyan lasof And to the wicked, he gave this thing. He gave him this, uh, this job, this, uh, this uh, drive, maybe an inner urge to go and collect all of this. The lichnos, to bring it all together. To give it to somebody else. Somebody who God wants it to be given to. So there's a couple of things I want to point out here. Number one, if we look in this actual verse of Kohelet, which is found at the end of the second chapter, in the 26th verse. Kilo Adam Shatov Lefan of Nasan. So Rashi says this would be like the residuals of Haman that were inherited by Esther and Mordechai. So Haman built this enormous compound, an unbelievable palatial campus, and he was hanging. He didn't get to enjoy it. Mordechai and Esther built a beautiful yeshiva there. So it doesn't, it doesn't really have to mean a son, per se. It could even be his son. It doesn't have to be his son. So why does Rabbeinu Chaya talk about a son? But, uh, furthermore, if you look in the Mitzudas, the Mitzudas David, he says, To this wicked person, God gave a tremendous spirit of ambition, a drive, a desire to create enormous wealth. So that it's prepared for a person who's righteous. That he gets everything in the end. The Sepharno says, this could be what happened to Father Jacob. He ends up having tremendous wealth out of Laban's wealth. So Laban's a bad guy, but his wealth goes to Yaakov. And the Ibn Ezra clearly says, it's Latoiv Lufneo Likim. It could be anybody, he says. The person who worked on everything never got to enjoy it. He worked and worked and worked. He built this, he amassed this fortune, and somebody else took it. Somebody else got it. It's a very interesting medrash. The medrash says that this could be the story of Avram, Avinu, and Nimrod. Nimrod was wicked, so he amassed great wealth, and it goes to Avram, Avinu. So Lasseis Latoiv Lufneo Likim is Avram. Another version in the Medrash says it's Yitzchak. The sinner is a man named Avimelech, another royal. And then the third version in the Medrash is Yaakov and his wicked or evil father-in-law Lavan. 
So why did Rabbeinu Bachaya say, Sheyitin lehakelyaz baruch ben tzadik, that he'll give him a righteous son or have a righteous son? Incidentally, this idea in the book of Mishlei, it's, it's, it's like a, he clearly could be somebody who is, who's not a, a, a child. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a Mishlei idea. It's Ecclesiastes idea. Yeah, you have it um, in the sixth chapter as well. Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar actually quotes this much earlier on in the beginning of the Shara B'tochen. And he says that Ish asher yitin lehu elikim oisher a person whom God grants great affluence and wealth, residuals, he's not missing anything. But he doesn't get to eat from it. A stranger eats from it. Oh, so to speak, benefits from it. The Sephornu says, when? He'll die. And the Sephornu goes further and he says, he won't even merit to give it to his family or relatives. So it's the exact opposite of what Rabbeinu Bachaya refers to over here. So what does he, what does he, why does he emphasize the son? So, <laughs> I don't know the answer. I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure why he does it, but I, here's, my, here's my little suggestion based on, on what I've uh, shared already on like, the reason for different explanations. In the first explanation, the person definitely enjoys the wealth and the pleasure and the, the tranquility, the prosperity that God gives him. In the second, it seems that he doesn't or he shouldn't be because he's not getting a reward. He's only, he's only holding a deposit for somebody else. But realistically, did Haman never enjoy the house he lived in? Was he like miserable till the day he died? And he only would have started to enjoy it the next day? <laughs> in, in, in later on in the verse in Kohela 6, when somebody else in the end is going to inherit it, a stranger is going to inherit it. Okay, but the person enjoyed it till then. One could argue everybody dies eventually. And what pleasure do you have when you're dead if you don't have an afterlife? So you don't even know what's going on afterwards? So what if it's your child? Who cares? So I was thinking like this. Maybe, maybe this person isn't actually that wicked. Maybe he's not as wicked as the first guy. Maybe he does some mitzvahs. But maybe some of his mitzvahs are actually real mitzvahs. Maybe he does get a little bit of the afterlife as well. And if he gets a little bit of the afterlife as well, so why was he being rewarded in this world? So Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar says, well, he wasn't really being rewarded. He was merely there to pass it on to somebody who was deserving. And I was thinking furthermore, if he actually merits to have a child who's righteous, so it says, like, ben yizaka'av, like the, the, the offspring can sometimes make a parent, a grandparent meritorious. We, we have this idea of a person's offspring bringing merit even after the person is no longer alive because they had a part in raising that child or because it was through them that this person was brought into the world. 
So is it not possible that maybe this person might enjoy, but they're enjoying on account of future merits accrued of an offspring? So maybe they'll benefit a little bit. I think this may have something to do with it. It kind of addresses, you know, from, from various ends. Maybe the person is miserable. Maybe he never gets the benefit from it for one second, maybe. But maybe he does. Maybe it's because he has a son who's righteous. Maybe because he's not wholly wicked and he actually does have a little portion in the future. Then why would Hashem reward him here? So he says he isn't really rewarding him here. Whatever, he doesn't deserve what he has, but he has it on account of the child that he produced. Anyway, this is my humble offering. I don't know if it's true. I could be, I could be entirely wrong. That's just, just a thought. Now Rabbeinu Bachai moves to yet another possibility. The Efsher, and maybe. That all this wealth, all this prosperity, all this fame and fortune is actually the thing that does him in. It's actually the thing that destroys him. Commissioner Kosov, like it says, and here, Rabbeinu Bechaya leans on Kohelet, on Ecclesiastes, and he says, Oisher Shomer of Rosay. Yeah, he's got wealth to his own detriment. Now, interestingly, Rashi, on this very Pasuk, gives a paradigm for this. I understand Rabbeinu Bechaya was written before Rashi, but still, it's like, this is the verse. He says, where do you see that? <laughs> like the wealth of Korach. How did Korach get wealthy? All the Jewish people left Mitzrayim with tremendous wealth, with donkeys laden with all kinds of gold and silver and brocades and, 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 and wardrobes that were more valuable than gold and silver. So, so what do you mean? How did he get very wealthy? So the Medrash says on the Pasuk of Ayelaket Yosef, it's Kolakesef, that Yosef gathered all the money all the gold and silver that was in Mitzrayim in the land of Canaan, and he brought it to the Pharaoh's palace, the, the Medrash says that he actually hid these treasures. Maybe it was entombed in, in that pyramid. We don't know exactly what it means, but it was entombed. And he says there were shalosh matmonius hit men Yosef. There were three treasures Yosef buried or hid. The first was discovered by Korach. So Korach left Egypt with much more wealth than everybody else. I mean, everybody was wealthy. He was super wealthy. The second, interestingly, the Gemara says, was discovered by the Caesar, Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, as he's called in the Gemara Antoninus, Rome's philosopher king, who had a long-standing relationship with Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, the redactor of the Mishnah, was favorably, favorably disposed to the Jewish people, though he did not allow that to be known to the public, and there's many interesting stories about that. Hashem rewards him and he finds his witches and then says the rest of the riches will be found in the future when Mashiach comes. It's the subject that's beyond the purview of what we're about to talk about. But here is the point. Korach was the lucky guy. He found all the money. What did it do for him? The answer, it destroyed him. Had Korach not been so wealthy, he would have been fine. It was his wealth that was his undoing. So Rashi says, because of his wealth, Nizga, he became arrogant, full of himself, rebelled against Moshe, and he sank into the abyss, lost forever. So his wealth wasn't actually a favor. It wasn't a good thing. 
You're looking at the wicked person and you're saying, look at that, he's prospering, he's wealthy, he has all these fantastic things and those things will kill him. It's God's way of not rewarding but exacting punishment. The ways of Hashem are a mystery. It's just another perspective. The perspective. The Neder Bar-Kredish says, Iker Hasibuv, the reason all these whole series of domino effects came about, so that it would be caused to him, eventually one thing will lead to the next, one cause brings to the next effect, to the next cause, in the end, they all contribute towards his downfall, towards bad and even death. So that gives us a perspective. The Paslechem explains it like this. He says, it's possible. It's possible that God does something good to the wicked. That's a That's the very thing that does him in. And he says, like the wealth of Korach, and he adds, the Paslechem adds also, of Novel, was a very, very bad, mean, selfish man in the time of David HaMelech. And that's a story unto itself. But his wealth becomes his undoing. Now, the person still kind of enjoyed himself till it was his undoing. Like, why couldn't God knock him down without this? Oh, this God's ways are a mystery, but in the end, what seemed to be a favor wasn't. And what if you see somebody who's got lots of money? You don't see his undoing. You don't see anything working out bad in the end. In fact, in the end, things turn out well. Ben Nebuchadnezzar says, you know, Sometimes, Hashem has patience. Hashem delays or stays His anger. God is patient. God is kind. He's compassionate. So it's possible, as the Toiva Levonin says, that this goodness that is given to the Rasha is Hashem is delaying His anger. Ajay Yashov till the person does tshuva, till the person returns to Hashem. And then he'll actually deserve what he has. Is there an example of this? Is there ever an example of a person who out of goodness became or came home to tshuva? Yeah, actually. Like we see with regard to Menashe. The Paslechem says, that you must know that Menashe, a lot of goodness came to his hand. He inherits goodness from past generations. And he has like good fortune shining on him. And he sinned terribly. He should have had all these things taken away from him. It's not that Hashem gave him, he received them. He was uh, lucky enough to be the previous righteous king's son. So he inherits his throne and his wealth. And he seems to have much good fortune. HaKadosh Baruch Hu. He says, Afal Pikin, Hu Yizbarach, Mayrach Hashem delays, allows the goodness to be in his hands. Because Hashem knows, And in the end, he'll deserve it. And this is like Menashe Melech Yehuda. He did terrible, wicked things. 
Hashem doesn't take away his kingdom. Because in the end, he does a tremendous amount of tshuva. And because he does a tremendous amount of tshuva in the end, it was very wicked for the first 22 years of his reign. But eventually, he did do tshuva. And this is documented in the Gemara, and there are various psukim in Chronicles that describe exactly how that worked. So it could be Hashem leaves it in somebody's hands because Hashem knows the future, and in the end they will do tshuva. There's a beautiful teaching from the Baal Shem Tev where he said, sometimes God brings a person low, and through that, He brings him to tshuva. And sometimes... God gives a person unearned, gratuitous goodness until the person becomes ashamed and he says, I have all this goodness. Shouldn't I do something to show appreciation? And so it's out of the prosperity that people can be brought to tshuva. The Baal Shem Tev would bless the people of Israel that that's how they should be brought to tshuva. The Rebbe would oftentimes quote this teaching, especially in the weeks prior to Rosh Hashanah, our Rebbe believed that the Jewish people had suffered enough and that now we should have the temptations of wealth and affluence and peace and tranquility. And out of these conditions, we should together do tshuva. There's a lot of questions that will always remain unanswered. What Rabbeinu Bachaya is doing for us here is giving us a sampling of things that are beyond our immediate reach and beyond our immediate vision. And that opens new horizons and helps us to fortify our faith, to continue along the path of betochen, nurturing true trust in Hashem Yisbarach without questions and doubts so that we can live with certainty and learn how to trust and have betochen in Hashem Yisbarach. And I hope that this was informative, maybe even uplifting, maybe even inspirational. Well, if it was, please do me a favor, comment, like, share. And if you haven't yet, I appreciate it if you can please subscribe. YouTube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. I'm grateful for your participation. Have an amazing day. Thanks for joining. Please come back tomorrow.